0: Disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad.
1: The fraternity of the aggrieved. Those who had a strong overriding sense of wanting to get revenge against Castro, it was a bitch's brew. It was the CIA, it was the mob, it was certain elements of the U.S. government, and of course, the exile community.
0: The Cuban-American gangster experience is no stranger to pop culture, from the saga of Tony Montana in Scarface to Miami's cocaine cowboys, who are still turning up in the news to this day. Now, an epic new book on the corporation, The East Coast numbers racket commandeered by exile gangster Jose Miguel Battle, a.k.a. Padrino, the godfather. The author, one of my very favorites, is here for the hour. So stay put, Poppy. This week's episode is made possible by Evo Advisors, offering financial advice that is globally experienced and locally based for those who have more than a 401k to manage. Visit EvoAdvisors.com. And by Performance Food Service, proud partner of Virginia restaurants and food service establishments, with more than 13,000 associates in 75 locations nationwide, online at pfgc.com. Joining us from NPR, New York City, is one of my favorite authors. This is such a treat. T.J. English, noted journalist and screenwriter, the author of eight books, including, what, four New York Times bestsellers, including one of my favorites, Havana Nocturne, Patty Wacked, and the Westies. His most recent book is The Corporation, which is the epic story of the Cuban-American underworld and the Bolita Racket and Jose Miguel Battle up and down the East Coast. How are you, sir? I'm great. It's good to be with you today. You could tell from the breathlessness of of my voice that you are indeed uh, an inspiration and influence. And I don't know how many times I read Havana Nocturne kind of in my darkest moment when I was trying to uh, birth Hotel Scarface, which, again, I got to toot my own horn. It's marketed alongside your book on the Amazons, man. Yes, it is. That's how those algorithms work. I got to ask you because I wondered and that I never entered the experience of my book on on, on reporting on, uh, you know, how the Cuban mafia vied for control of the cocaine trade in Miami. I didn't appreciate to what extent the PTSD of the, the Bay of Pigs crisis and the abandonment of the early 60s led to all of these various other misadventures in Miami. And in reading yours, um, you know, your protagonist, your main character, Jose Miguel Battle, was a cop in pre-revolutionary Havana. Um, He was a freedom fighter who was captured with the Bay of Pigs uh, Brigade 2506 in Havana. Mm -hmm. And I just I I, I, you know, I wonder how different history would have been if Kennedy had finished the job, if Kennedy had even after abandoning them and not giving them, uh, you know, Air Force cover, went back and took out Castro in the early 60s.
1: Well, it would have been a much different trajectory for the for the Cuban-American historical experience if, if that had been successful. And you're so right. I mean, I was obsessed to a certain degree with this book about the fact that it was the story of what I called the Bay of Pigs generation. That the residue of the revolution, the fallout of the revolution and the Bay of Pigs invasion, which was such a disaster for everyone involved that the psychological consequences for that for the community and really for the United States at large because the so-called Cuba conflict was such a central piece or became such a central piece of the Cold War, a sub-theme of the Cold War throughout the latter part of the 20th century. Cuban exiles in consort with the CIA being used to do covert operations, against governments that were believed to be sympathetic to Cuba, covert operations against Cuba itself, assassination attempts of Castro, the CIA partnering with the mob to kill Castro, all of this dirty history that has now come out. Um, It's taken decades for it to be revealed. Now we can see in its totality the effect that it had on a generation, both Cuban-American and American. And to me, it was the psychological linchpin to understand Jose Miguel Battle, to understand his reputation within the community and to understand the psychology of of those around him.
0: You know, just to flesh it out for our listeners who aren't familiar with Cold War history, I certainly have to steep myself in it, is April uh, 1961. You had more than 1,100 largely CIA-trained, many of them South Floridian Cuban exiles who stormed Cuba at the Bay of Pigs to take out uh, Castro's regime, which is pretty much two years old. They were expecting that the new president, Kennedy, would give them uh, backups and reinforcements but they were largely abandoned after battles raged for three days and the the soldiers were either killed uh forced to surrender really embarrassed by fidel castro who who frog marches them out while he's chomping on a cigarette he had tortured them he had ransomed them for 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 cash and for medical supplies and baby food and kennedy returns to um Miami, when majority of these guys are released within a year later, and he greets them at the Orange Bowl and he vows that their flag of the brigade will be returned to Havana. Of course, Kennedy is dead about a year later. And the the theater of kind of focus for the Cold War in the United States shifted to Vietnam gradually in the 1960s. So what you had is all of these orphaned Cold warriors in South Florida and places like, uh, you know, New Jersey and New York are saying, "What the heck, man? You 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 abandon our country." And a lot of them turn to kind of bide their time to crime and rackets and marijuana and gun running and 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 mob hits. And you zeroed in on one Jose Miguel Battle who opted not to go to Miami but ended up in the tri-state area. Tell us about him.
1: Yes. Well, first of all, I should clarify that Battle, I. Battle is not a typical Bay of Pigs veteran. It probably wouldn't be fair to say that. Most veterans of the brigade went on to productive lives. But I think it is fair to say that the Bay of Pigs invasion, Battle's experiences in the Bay of Pigs invasion, his being uh, a member of that generation, definitely shaped him, um, and he would not have been Person, he was, were it not for the Bay of Pigs invasion, his involvement in it, and the consequences of it. He's such a fascinating figure. He was a hero in the war. He engaged in a heroic act. I spend the whole first chapter uh, detailing his heroism in the Bay of Pigs invasion because I had been told it uh, numerous times when I started this project, and I was skeptical. I said, How do we know this? I mean, battle told people. Other people repeated stories, but I just felt maybe this was just part of his legend. So I had to, right off the bat, research and writing this book, my first task was to find out the true nature of what happened in the Bay of Pigs invasion. And I found the man that battle saved, who was part of a brigade that battle saved, a platoon that battle saved. And I found the two brothers that went with him when he saved those men. So I found three of the primary participants of the event, and I went to Cuba to the Bay of Pigs location and the actual site where this act of heroism took place. So I was able to really get at the truth of it, and the truth was is that he engaged in a totally uh, courageous historic act at the Bay of Pigs. And so from that point onward, that's what he was known for, and within the community he was a legend, and he was revered. And so as he launched into his uh, career as a gangster, as a mob boss and a professional criminal, he always had his defenders. He always had people that said he's being persecuted by the media. He's He's a hero. He's a hero in our community. And that was a big part of Battle's mystique. Gave him a lot of power. Some would say made him invulnerable to law enforcement bringing down his organization for close to 40 years.
0: You know, there are a couple of uh, fortunate things emanating from the Bay of Pigs disaster and that this this um, unspoken alliance and and you covered it in Havana Nocturne as well with the with the Cuban exiles, the angry Cuban exiles in Miami and up and down the coast. And the uh, Italian and Jewish mobs who, after all, I don't think many people appreciate that these guys lost everything when Havana switched over. They were the ones who ran the casinos. They were the ones who owned the brothels, the judges. Mm-hmm. And so there was this natural alliance afterwards. I mean, even Santo Traficante, the the uh, you know the mob boss back in, in, in Tampa um, who was big with the numbers racket and, and these other things um, – he was a natural ally for the CIA when they were planning these kind of cockamamie schemes to f- kill Fidel Castro. I think you mentioned mm-hmm. in your book, like, they knew that he would go diving for fancy seashells and they were going to plant yes. a bomb in a huge conch or something. Yes, that was one plot. So it made bizarre kind of natural allies out of exiles, you know, these freedom fighters who just wanted their country back, and, and gangsters yes. who were gangsters for much of the 20th century.
1: The, the fraternity of the aggrieved, uh, the, the those <laughs> – those who uh, had a strong overriding sense of revenge, wanting to get revenge against Castro. It was a a bitch's brew. It was the CIA. It was the mob. It was uh, certain elements of the U.S. government and, of course, the exile community. And um, that's to, to follow that thread was probably the main reason I wanted to write this book because when I was out promoting... Havana Nocturne, the question that would always come up was, well, you get to the end of the book and then what happens? I mean, what happens when the mob, what happened after the mob got chased out of Cuba? That was a big question. Well, my and impression, I,
0: I... TJ, is that they, they brought a lot of their act to Miami. You had the bookie wars, you had, uh, you know, people, Cuban gangsters blowing each other up at, at the mob's yes. behest. Uh, you know, Lefty Rosenthal went his separate way. You had, um, uh, uh you know, jewel fencers and and famous people, and then that sublimated Absolutely. into the marijuaneros of the seventies, and then the yes. cocaine cowboys. It was almost like a three point turn. I had completely overlooked the bolita racket, which I'd never understood. You know, I lived in Manhattan for 10, 12 years, and we were always told that you know you go up to Spanish Harlem or the Bronx. Uh, there, there are these places that would take numbers if you made the right wink at the bodega. Can you can you tell us about the evolution of bolita?
1: <laughs> well. That's a, you could do a well, book just on that. I guess I kind of have, but I mean, you well, could do a book. Well, I didn't realize sp- it was such yeah. big business. Big business going all the way back to the 20s and 30s. Um, the the second biggest racket for the mob in New York after illegal booze in the 20s was Numbers. And it was run by Dutch Schultz, a gangster who based his operations in Harlem. Harlem was the numbers betting center of the universe. Um, Bolita, the lottery, for those who don't know, it's basically the lottery, uh, an illegal lottery. Before states and governments controlled the lotteries as they do now, it was illegal and it was controlled by organized crime. And it was the simplest of rackets. It was known as poor man's gambling. Anyone, you had a nickel or a dime, you can go bet the number. And many, many people did—little old ladies, uh, priests, cops. Everyone would bet the number. It was seen as a very benign form of gambling, a victimless crime. Uh, so it was a money maker for the mob, going back to the 20s and 30s, based in Harlem, based in the black community and in the Latino community. And what happened in the in the wake of the revolution and the displacement of so many Cubans? into the United States. Battle recognized, I think, that as this process took place, that there was would be a huge new market of Latinos, specifically Cubans in the United States, to, to bet the number. And he went to Santo Trafficante and formed an alliance with the mafia very early on from, from its genesis. Battle was a master at establishing alliances, taking care of whoever needed to be taken care of, making sure whoever was supposed to get their piece of the pie got their piece of the pie. And so he immediately formed this alliance with the mafia, knowing that he would need their backing. But let's explain that. So
0: the the foot in the door in his case is that he was a Bay of Pigs hero and a known quantity to Santo Traficante, who after all was detained by Fidel Castro when they seized his casinos and was livid too when he was finally sprung into the United States. So he had an in with the mob, almost automatically coming out of the Bay of
1: Pigs. Well, we could take it back one step further to his time as a vice cop in Havana. Oh, that's right. He he was uh, the bag man for the mob. He delivered the skim from the casinos to the presidential palace. So he was a small but central cog in the machine of of the Havana mob and that's where he really made his alliances. So by the Traficanti. 19 so
0: by the 1960s and 1970s in New York, he was in a position to kind of parlay that saying, "Look, yes. you have a, a a growing population. We know about the Puerto Rican population, the Dominican populations in New York and in the Bronx, but I have an in with the Cubans and if you give us territory in the Bolita holes, you're going to have uh, this is this is tradition in Cuba. This goes back a long yes. ways and people are going to want this in Miami and in other cities and in Tampa. Um give me the franchise, give me a cut and I pay on time. I'm very good. I'm not dirty and he did get that foot in the door.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. They they the the mafia guys, the person he dealt with most uh specifically in New York was Anthony Salerno, Fat Tony Salerno. Fat who Tony Salerno. Yeah, controlled the numbers racket for all five families in New York. And they liked Battle. They called him Mike Mike Battle. He'd come to the social club in East Harlem where uh, Salerno was based. He'd usually come with an envelope of cash that would be a payment, a regular payment that was made to Salerno. And, yeah, they recognized it. I mean, you know, numbers uh, is like a religion for the Cubans. I detail it a little bit in the book.
0: Yeah, the like if you dreams. see a dream of a goat that yeah. represents number seven, There's some, maybe there's some centuria aspects to it. Yeah, well, certainly some
1: numerology mm-hmm. and, and some kind of mystical elements to it. And um, most importantly, it, this was really a key for me to understanding the culture of bolita. So much of betting the number is tied into your dreams. Uh, um, so you go into the bodegas and there's dream books, little pamphlets and magazines that explain to you how to apply certain numbers to figures and events that occur in your dream so if you see a, you have a dream and there's a donkey in it there's a certain number that represents the donkey and you bet some version of that number and so what you're attempting to do when you when you play the number is make your dreams come true literally quite literally and the boliteros the people who set up the mechanism are the are the dream makers are the are the creators of dreams so yes it's about money and prosperity and all of that but it's also about some secret code to understanding your dreams that's going to bring you prosperity so it's a powerful it was always a powerful cultural force and battle understood this and the mafia figures understood it enough to get out of the way and let battle set up the operation the way he felt he needed to.
0: Could you explain it for me? Like, say you walk into a Bolita hole on 140th and Amsterdam. I don't know. Right. Do you do a, a special wink at the guy behind the counter to show him that you're good? Does he bring out any sort of stationery or a ticket? Um, is it a one through 10 number, a one through 100 number? And how do they come up with that number? I never understood uh, right. One one other thing is that all these guys paid on time. It was a, it was a system that really had to be based on trust. You had yes. to pay. You had to pay on time.
1: Yeah, the, the betting the number is a daily thing. There are certain designated locations. They don't have signs. They don't tell you where they are. But if you're at all in the know, you know where they are. It might be in a uh, in a bodega. It might be in a auto garage. A candy store. You go in, uh, you know, all the places where it is now, or a lot of the places where it is, where you go do your scratch-off cards now, that, that would be where you would go bet the number. And normally what you bet was a three-digit number, and that three-digit number was derived by the total mutual handle at the local racetrack that day. So at the end of the evening, the evening edition of the newspaper, and then again in the morning... They print the betting totals that took place at Aqueduct or Belmont or whatever your local, your local track is. The last three digits of that number were the daily number, were the number for that day, and so that's how you knew it. And what would be the what it, would be
0: the multiple if you hit it? Like, say you put down five bucks, six hundred to one.
1: Wow, a good payoff, a very good payoff. That's why people chose. That's why people, uh, frankly, still choose sometimes to bet the number illegally because the payoff is so much better than the legal lottery. And
0: at its peak, how big was the bolita, say, in in New York or the tri-county area?
1: It's hard to quantify that because it was a legal enterprise and records, to the extent that they kept them at all, were usually destroyed within a week or two. It was massive. All we know is the money that was being generated by it. We're talking about millions of dollars on a monthly basis, billions and billions of dollars over the course of the life of this organization. At any given time, there were probably something like 200 bolita spots around the five boroughs of New York, primarily Harlem, Spanish Harlem. There were bolita spots in New Jersey that the corporation controlled. It was a massive undertaking, and it's always mind-boggling to me. I mean, I write about organized crime a lot. I write about it from different ethnic points of view. It never ceases to amaze me Criminal organizations that are put together and run by men primarily, men and women who are by and large illiterate or people with not a lot of formal education, people who have fallen out of the education system at some point in their life. They don't have uh, formal education skills and yet they have ambition and drive, and they apply it to this criminal enterprise, and they wind up running something like the corporation, which was multi-leveled, that had uh, offshoots and operations in many different jurisdictions. I mean, just getting the money, getting the money from the Bolita locations to a place where the money could be counted,
0: where the money could be stored, was quite an operation. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to one of my true crime superheroes, T.J. English. He's a noted journalist and screenwriter. His screenwriting credits include NYPD Blue and Homicide. Um, Some of my favorite books are by T.J., including Havana Nocturne and The Westies. And I really enjoyed his most recent, The Corporation, an epic story of the Cuban-American underworld. Uh, T.J., I'm trying to timestamp or pinpoint when Jose Miguel Battle, the Freedom Fighter, broke bad, if you will. Um, when did he – was it when his brother was killed and he was hell-bent on, on finding and, and torturing and killing his mm. assassin? W- when did he kind of lose his scruples? Because you would think that Bolito was decidedly nonviolent. If no- if nobody yeah. turfed on you, if nobody ripped you off, if people paid on time, you don't have to bust knees, right? Right. Yeah. No, it was supposed
1: to be nonviolent. Back in Cuba, it was not violent. Uh, it was illegal. But it was um – Not supposed to be violent because people who partook in betting the number didn't want to feel like they were engaging in an organized crime activity when they bet the number. So it was important that it appeared very benign. Where did battle break bad? What a fascinating question.
0: That's why I get paid the big bucks. I ask fascinating (laughs) questions.
1: Well, the answer to that is I'm not sure he was ever really good, that he needed to break bad. I mean, he was a a cop in Havana in a time when Havana— had a very sophisticated universe of of corruption and vice. And so he was kind of born into that. He was a country bumpkin from Santiago who came and became a cop in Havana in the 50s and sort of um, adapted to that world. And it seemed to be... There's there's there was where he learned how the world goes round. How but you cor- you know, cor-
0: corruption I think morphed into bloodlust when his younger brother yes. was killed by one Jose Palulu sure. Enriquez. And it's it's kind it's it's almost funny. Um, it's like almost like Weekend at Bernie's, the way they try to kill this guy. Like they, they, this one assassin in New York who talks crap about his brother, points a gun at his head, kills him, enrages the godfather El Padrino, and he puts out such a hit on this guy's head. And it gets botched three or four times. Palulu even loses his leg. They ultimately kill him in a hospital where he's convalescing. But can you, can you tell us about that and vengeance and kind of – I think that that was the pivot point where all this stuff yeah, really started becoming sure. violent.
1: Absolutely. Well, that was—and there were eight or nine attempts over the course of nine years to get Palulu. And, yeah, you're right. His—it was all motivated by Palulu having murdered Battle's youngest brother in Washington Heights in Manhattan. And it touched off a psychotic need for revenge, um, which is not a hard one to understand. His brother was murdered in a very public way, and it was done—it was done deliberately— as an act against not only the brother but the Battle family. And so I think what it did was it ignited Battle's sense of humiliation and need for revenge. Again, sort of the Bay of psycho psychology, Battle had a very acute need for revenge. If he had been wronged or humiliated, especially in a public way, he was going to be incredibly diligent and focused and—, and uh, do whatever needed to be done to, to to get revenge. And he was kind of patient about it. There were numerous attempts, and Palula just wouldn't die. I mean, they shot him point-blank in the face, and the bullet went around his brain and came out the back and didn't pierce his brain. They Palulu went into prison a couple of times. They ha- hired someone to stab him in the prison yard to kill him twice, and, and he survived those attacks a machine gun shootout in central park in the middle of the afternoon on a weekday shredded the guy's leg I mean obliterated his leg palulu gets sh- sh- leg shredded and loses his leg it w- has to go on with a prosthetic leg finally battle says as he often did when he got frustrated that hits that weren't being carried out he took matters into his own hands he said I'm going to be there they set up a hit on palulu in the bronx they knew where he was going to be late on an evening, they trapped him there. They, in the middle of the street, they loaded, loaded, loaded his body with bullets. The last thing he sees while he's laying in the street before he falls unconscious is he looks up and he sees Jose Miguel Battle standing over him, laughing at him, and then he goes unconscious. They think he's dead. Battle <laughs> believes that he just witnessed Palulu die right before his eyes. They leave, they find out that Palulu's in the hospital and he's still alive. He survived that hit. That was maybe hit number nine, uh, attempt number nine. And so now they're beside themselves, and they quickly make the decision to hire an assassin, dress him up as a male nurse, send him into the hospital where Palulu is at 2 o'clock in the morning, and shoot him between the eyes in his hospital bed. And so the epic attempt to get revenge against
0: Palulu is finally satisfied. Now it's one thing among gangsters, uh, but I was struck, uh, especially having having lived in Hell's Kitchen, New York, for so long, at the four ten West Fifty Sixth Street uh, incident. I believe I, I believe my barber shop was right there. To be honest with you, and mm, it, it yeah. inhabited another life beforehand. But the 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 murder of. A uh, little uh, four-year-old girl that was being yeah. babysat named Janine Toribio, um, who's yeah. just like looked at as collateral damage when one of these bolita holes is getting blown up and incinerated. Um, yeah. You would think there'd be honor among, you know, family men, especially in, in battles cases like we don't delve into narcotics. We run a straight business here. Yeah. And I know you have to fight fire with fire and protect your turf. But how does something like that happen? A little four-year-old well, girl getting killed in a, yeah. in a bombing.
1: Well, what happened was this this Cuban-Italian alliance had been so profitable and strong for about 10 years, and then it started to fray. And it frayed uh, over this rule that they had called the two-block rule, which meant that no organization could, could open up a Bolita spot that was any closer to another Bolita spot, any closer than two blocks. That rule got violated by—I'm not even—after— researching, investigating, and I'm not even sure which side it was that violated it, but it got violated, and it touched off a war between the Italians and the Cubans in New York City in the mid-1980s. And it was horrific. It was an arson war. They were firebombing each other's bolita spots. And it was incredibly ruthless and vicious. And by this time, Battle and many of the hier- hierarchical, hierarchical members of the corporation had moved to Miami, So this war was out of sight and out of mind as far as they were concerned. They were sanctioning attacks, uh, arsons, but they didn't have to suffer the consequences of it because they were so far away. But back in New York, people were being incinerated, um, innocent bystanders, people who were just in the wrong place at the wrong time, which was the case with Janine Toribio and her, her babysitter who had gone to this to see the babysitter's boyfriend and they got trapped in this horrific fire and this four-year-old child was incinerated to death. It was horrifying. Many members of the organization were horrified by it. Um, it was a level of violence that most of them had not signed up for. Um, it was a uh, example of Battles' ruthlessness, you say, fight fire with fire. Well, this was quite literally a case of that. And Battle was not going to be wronged. If he was wronged in any way, he was going to come back fiercer than you could ever imagine. He, by that point, had taken on the persona of a gangster, a ruthless gangster. That's how he saw himself. He wasn't ashamed to to say that's what he was, and and I think I I believe that his feeling was that if I'm going to be a gangster, I'm going to be the most feared gangster on the block.
0: What's fascinating to me, TJ, in in reading this and that, um, with my book Hotel Scarface, a lot of these guys privately and publicly lit a candle for Don Corleone. In fact, they'd yes. always cry when The Godfather would come on TV on on you know UHF movie night or something like that. And sometimes you 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 have these these vignettes of of battle kind of. Repairing into his own, like going into a hotel room and just watching marathon, you know, Godfather one and two.
1: Yeah, well, he even looked like him a little bit, sounded like Brando, in the, and he in took the Don on the Corleone. affect
0: as well, right?
1: Yeah, people didn't know if he was doing it deliberately or if it was just by osmosis or what it was, but something in that character, I think, it had to do with Don, with Don Corleone's burden in life, the fact that he was this patriarch who was trying to preserve old world values in the new world. And he had a sense of noblesse oblige and carry the weight of the world on his shoulders. And he had his three sons, where Battle had his brothers. And um, he identified with it so strongly. He, he felt like it was his story. Um, he got to the point where he had memorized parts of it. It was almost a delusionary thing where where in the end he's disappearing in the, into the delusion of being the godfather. But I must say, um, he kind of betray betrays his own obsession with Don Corleone. He becomes more like Tony Montana. Um, you know, he becomes ruthless in a way that the Don never would have been ruthless. He violates the so-called don't deal cocaine edict that I, I, I believe... He probably got the idea for that from the Godfather movie. Um, so Battle started with this sense of nobility that he, is, he associated with Don Corleone. But by the end of his career as a mobster, he had completely lost that any sense of nobility.
0: It's interesting. You noted in the book that, um, you know, the family did almost accidentally dabble in cocaine, which was the province of the big gangsters in Miami. Uh, It said that it was believed that his son, Battle Jr., had been kidnapped by some major players, quite possibly Mm -hmm. the team of Willie and Sal, the biggest cocaine traffickers in Miami. The rumor was that Battle had been getting involved in cocaine deals and stepped on some toes. Junior had been snatched off the street and was being held for ransom, though it was believed the act was more a warning to Battle Sr. than an actual money-making proposition. I always thought, you know, my impression was that these guys sullied their hands on underworld undertakings in the interest of returning glory back to the motherland. I mean, even even Willie and Sal, they were fronting all of this money to the Contra cause in the 1980s. They never kind of Mm. took their eyes off that ball, even if it was just self-interested tithing, protection money. Was battle throughout, was he sending money back to the anti-communist cause? I mean, were these guys all kind of united uh, together and kind of listen. We're just biding our time here. We're ultimately wanting to end up back in a restored Havana, after all.
1: Oh, absolutely. They, they never, they never let go of that dream. And I, I would say, Battle's biggest regret in life is that he wasn't able to play a more central role in the anti-Castro movement. It had been his intention. You have to remember when he was released from Isla Pines prison in Cuba as a brigade member. The first thing he did was join the U.S. Army, and he was stationed at Fort Benning, Georgia, and he was stationed there with a whole bunch of uh, Cubans from the brigade who had been allowed to join the army as fully commissioned officers because they already had the training, their Bay of Pigs training. And it was like a who's who of Cuban exiles who would later become prominent players in the anti-Castro movement, Luis Posada Cariles, Felix, Felix Rodriguez, um... Jorge Mascanosa, all these people were, were there at Fort Benning interacting. And I think that's where they sort of ventured on into life, into their adult lives with this shared sense of brotherhood revolving around the issue of Cuba and our desire and our, our, our belief that we are going to reclaim this island. And everything they did in their life, was to an extent motivated by that. And yeah, I'm well, researching this book and just getting to know Cubans, particularly in Miami, I've often heard people say, you know, and, and oftentimes it's people that don't speak English, and they say, well, that's
0: because I thought I was going back to Cuba next week. It's true you know one criminal defense attorney compared it in in my book to it's like have you ever washed a rental car if you're only staying here for a couple of months or anything right. are you going to put down roots and observe the institutions no you're you're biding your time but of course right. what happened is Fidel Castro he had outlasted how many US presidents i mean if you go from 1959 to right. him dying what a year and a half two years ago it's pretty breathtaking i mean nobody would have yes. imagined that that he would have lasted this long
1: absolutely well and um, as a side note to that, narcotics, Willie and Sal, and that was always just a rumor, by the way, that Willie and Sal were behind that. Um, that was almost sort of like a, a tall tale, the kidnapping of Junior. I could find very little specific on it. I did talk to two of the Miami cops who were involved in that case, that investigation, when it occurred. But they even they said that it was all so mysterious the way that it was handled. They claimed that CIA agents— showed up at the battle home when it occurred. They they had this sense that there were some larger forces overseeing battle and protecting battle. But was most fascinating to me about that anecdote and the coking cowboy era in general, and you're a, a perfect person to to talk to about this. Oh shot. I found it I found <laughs> it fascinating. I found it fascinating. Battle had to deal battle had been up in operation for 15 years or so as a gangster by the time the cocaine era arrived on the scene. He was an old-school mobster, almost like an Italian mafiosi in the way he was configured in the underworld. When the cocaine era hit, he was initially very concerned about it and kept it at arm's length because he quite rightly sensed that it was going to bring down a level of heat and attention from law enforcement, that it was going to upend the apple cart, And that was going to cause him a lot of problems and that it was something that he wouldn't be able to control in the way that he controlled Bolita. And he was, he was, uh, I don't want to say fearful of it, but he was definitely leery of having any involvement with it. It wasn't until he moved from New Jersey, Union City, New Jersey, to Miami, to Redlands in 1985, that Ultimately, not only does he become involved in the cocaine business—not at a—not at the level of Willie and Sal, nothing like that—but at a lower level. I think when he went to Miami, part of the reason he did that is you could not be a racketeer in South Florida in the 1980s and 90s and not be in the cocaine business. To to function and operate as a criminal, to have the alliances that you needed to have, you would have to be
0: to a certain extent in the cocaine business. No one would trust you if you weren't. Sure, and, and in, in the way of tribute to the CIA, which was his ally. I mean, the CIA and Iran-Contra was heavily involved in swapping yeah. you know, arms for cocaine, The kind of the Costa Rican theater, which he was no stranger to. Full disclosure, we're talking to T.J. English, best-selling author, most recently of The Corporation, a book I just finished and really enjoyed. I, I've also read Havana Nocturne, Paddy Wacked, and The Westies. He is a screenwriter, is as credits have appeared on NYPD Blue and Homicide. Um, I do want to ask you, uh, going back to the experience of enlisting in the army, I'm haunted by this one photo in your gallery of Jose Miguel Battle and, and Angel Mujica, who knew each other since Havana. It says they were both members of the Brigade 2506. They were both imprisoned at the Isle of Pines under Castro. And on the same day in the United States, they both joined the U.S. Army. But when they catch up years later... And Mujica uh, needs money and asks to be cut into the bolita racket. And I believe it was at a cockfight that the godfather grants this. Yeah. He turned around and said he was a dead man. And he had a, he had a hit put on what I yes, thought he... in illustrating in the book was his, his brother in arms. Hmm. Yeah. Could yeah. you tell us more about that or stuff that was left on the cutting room floor? How did he just look at this guy as, as you're, you're kind of a Johnny come lately, you're coming looking for a handout or what's the deal?
1: Well, you know, when you talk about battle losing his soul, this is a really good example of of, of that. You, there's so many incidents in this book that have that kind of intimacy. Um, best friends, close, close people turning on each other, um, uh, kind of intimate level of violence. It's quite mm, disturbing, you know, um, sad. Um, this was a guy who... From his days as a cop in Havana, had been a partner, buddy of his, and they were together all through life. And in fact, Mujica was the one that first started the bolita business in New York. Battle kind of came in and piggybacked on it. So, so Mujica was one of the originators of bolita. He'd gone off to Spain. He'd sort of cashed out of the business, and believed that he was out of the business. And then he went broke, and he came back, and he tried to negotiate his way back into the business, and battle
0: had him killed why and have him killed why he, not just like pay pay him off or, or keep him in a corner i i didn't understand that um yeah, i wonder I if that's was, when he truly broke bad because well, this, that was, this was a guy who he was imprisoned with that was
1: battle he definitely was trying to make a public display of his, of his heartlessness his ability you do not cross me if you do i will kill you and i don't care who you are and uh that was the ruthless nature of the organization But that he T.J., why,
0: why did he cross him? He came back effectively with his hands open and he genuflected before the godfather at a cockfight. And he took him at his word that, listen, I'll, I'll cut you in, albeit at a very small clip.
1: Well, there is another detail. Mujica came back and first started up his bolita uh, operation without asking. And he had cashed out. He had been paid a certain amount of money. I believe it was like two hundred or $3,000 dollars he had been paid that money to step aside and turn over what operations he had left to the organization he came back and started it back up without asking battle and battle heard about it and said he, you know tell him he better come to me and he did and so then he did come to him at the cockfight the the coming to the godfather at the cockfight was sort of the version in the movie, The Godfather, where they had come to the Don in his den during the wedding. During the daughter's wedding. for favors. <laughs> sure. the, Cuban ver- the Cuban version is it's a cockfight. And they would literally line up and come to The Godfather and ask for favors at the cockfight while the cockfighting is going on. And, and yeah, Mojica asked. And the really chilling part of it is they embraced and hugged. And Battle said, yes, yes, we are brothers. And he waited till the guy was out of the room and he said to somebody else, as an aside, this guy doesn't realize it yet, but he's a dead man. And then he had him assassinated in, in New York in a kind of brutal uh, hit, public hit, and done in a very public way to send a public message. Hmm. And this was at a time when Battle was eliminating a number of his older associates, uh, the dead, he, he probably thought of it as you know um, removing dead wood. But these were some of his oldest associates, and many of them did have Bay of Pigs connections. They were from that generation, and that was disturbing to a lot of people who were within the realm of this organization that Battle was was taking out all these old-time people had, who had once been his closest friends.
0: Hmm. Uh, TJ, I want you to take me to Jose Miguel Battle, the godfather's last stand, let's say the 90s going into the aughts. He did make the... Uh, The front of the New York Daily News in September of 1993, it says, when it comes to numbers, he's the king. This is Jose Miguel Battle, the ruthless Cuban crime boss who controls nearly all of New York's illegal numbers rackets, according to city and state police. So let's say the cops caught up to him uh, by the early 90s. I was also struck by this kind of this this white elephant pursuit of his, the casino in Lima, Peru. I wonder if that was a consolation prize by the time he had realized, you know what? George Bush, our former guy in the CIA, George H.W. Bush, he's not doing us any favors. It's not going to be a yeah. rematch of Bay of Pigs. Fidel Castro, it turns out, is long for this world. I'm not going to get my glorious casino, um, you know, on the waterfront in Havana. Maybe the next best thing is I build an approximation yeah. of it in another country where I could pay off the feds and the police. And they build this in in the old Creon Hotel in Lima. Um, and And they were very divided about this, the corporation. Tell us about it.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, the the inciting incident that brought all that about was presidential commission hearings about gambling and organized crime in 1985 yeah. in New York. The, the Reagan administration... I don't think they set out that this was going to be about the Cubans at all. It yeah, was going and Rudy, Rudy Giuliani, Rudy
0: Giuliani's mayor, and
1: right, it was. Well, no, Giuliani wasn't mayor yet; that comes later. But Giuliani was the head federal prosecutor. No, but by the time he's, he's in time. The,
0: on the front of the Daily News, I mean, yes, if an Italian is going to go after Italians, then yes, a Cuban.
1: Ring but goes. the hearings were in '85, and um, mm. they they were happening right around the time that this arson war broke out between the Cubans and Italians, and was in the newspaper every day. So the commission shifted their attention to the Cubans, Cuban organized crime, the Cuban underworld, particularly revolving around Bolita. And they had these hearings where they brought in a secret witness who wore a hood over his head so you couldn't tell his identity, who was a high-ranking member of the corporation and laid out the organizational structure of chapter and verse. They put together one of those little charts with the... uh, with the boss at the Godfather at the top and all his underlings. And Battle was named publicly. They were all named publicly. It was quite a dramatic outing for the corporation, which up to that point had pretty much run below the radar in terms of media attention. And, you know, the average person probably didn't even know there was such a thing as, as the Cuban mob or the corporation or anything yeah. like that. That changed with those hearings, uh, The whole direction of law enforcement changed somewhat to the point where Battle started to realize that his days were numbered in the United States. He was going to be indicted. And then, of course, he does appear on the front page of the Daily News. Um, he's He's being now sort of configured to be public enemy number one. And he realizes it's time for him to skedaddle, which he had done before um, to Spain, so he was willing to go into exile if need be. The plan was he went to Peru and he started this casino under a false name, didn't use his name, called himself Alfred Wayed, and nobody in his organization wanted him to do it. They all knew it was going to be a disaster. Battle had no experience. He had nothing other than a dream. He wanted to be like Lansky and Traficante. Those were always the ultimate mobsters to him, So he had this dream, and he went down there. Um, They they literally shipped money. He had his associates kind of strap money to their bodies and load themselves up with tens of thousands of dollars and take multiple flights a day from Miami to Lima, bring money down there. And so they were using the casino to launder their proceeds from the United States. This would eventually cause them a lot of trouble and really be a— a key element of what would bring them down in Iraq, at a racketeering trial was the money laundering aspect of it. The casino started up really well. It was the only casino. It was the first casino ever in Peru. Um, through his sort of corrupt alliances, he was able to get a, a license from the Peruvian government to establish this casino there. It was quite a novelty. Initially, it was a big hit. And then there was a car bombing By the Sendero Luminoso, the Shining shining Path, path, a terror organization that uh, didn't uh, like this capitalist enterprise uh, run by foreigners launching itself in the middle of Lima. And a car bomb went off, and they demanded money. They demanded ransom. So now Battle had a problem. He probably felt like he was back in Havana in the 50s with bombs going off by leftist revolutionary organizations. So he had to confront that, and that damaged the business. Um, and but slowly, moreover,
0: more the... he didn't much trust anyone in the casino. He's having massive no. fights with his mistress, Eugenia Reyes, who yes. then you know leaves in a huff and gets killed somewhere in Central America. Yeah. He's firing people that he was poaching from from other areas that had varying levels of competence. They'd they'd argue that something was amiss or I'm not getting paid and then he'd threaten to have him killed. And I mean, this was was no way to run uh, any sort (laughs) of front business, much, you know, a casino or even a pizza shop.
1: I have to say the whole casino uh, section, which is sort of like the third act of a movie, was maybe my favorite because he just goes off the rails down there. I mean, everything that he's created he he blows it up almost and he doesn't trust anyone. Now part of this is he starts doing cocaine. He's he's in his mid 60s by this point. And he he takes up cocaine and develops a a, a daily cocaine habit habit for the first time around the age of 65. So he's extremely paranoid. He's sitting there in his underwear with a shotgun in his lap watching the Godfather movies in his suite all all afternoon. So when he comes down to the casino, he's in some delusionary state. He's coked up. He doesn't really know much about the business. He runs it as a gangster enterprise. He believes that he can threaten and intimidate everybody to do what he says that they he wants them to do. And But he's dealing with actual casino professionals now. He's dealing with business people that are not gangsters and criminals. And he just did not fit with this world. And he starts intimidating people and they don't like it. And they go to the government and they file lawsuits and it just begins to get worse and worse for him. It also creates a paper trail. The U.S. government wants him deported because he had entered Peru on a false passport. They put pressure on the Peruvian government to kick him out peru kicks him out initially not back to the united states he bounces around a few different locations with his new girlfriend and then he eventually is deported back to the united states and by now he's in not great health and he's an older guy in his late 60s and his empire is passing him by he's no longer the day-to-day manager of it and his his final days are quite sad he is is dogged by this cop, David Shanks, who's determined that this guy will see his day in court and that this organization will be fully uh, prosecuted in court. And Shanks is as as persistent as battle was in in his revenge fantasies. And uh, so they're able to build a major case against battle. It was quite a case. It was um, federal. Uh, prosecutors in New York and Miami combining to put on the case against the corporation, multiple counts, major indictment dealing with criminal activities of the corporation going all the way back to the mid-60s and then all the way up to the end of the century. It was really
0: epic. The long, long, long long arm finally caught up with them.
1: Yeah, and I asked uh, many people, prosecutors who were there for that trial, and battle was really unhealthy. They'd have to wheel him in in on an oxygen tank, on a Daily basis, and I said, Well, what was his demeanor like during the trial? How did he fear, feel about it? And everyone said the same thing. They said, I think he was enjoying it, his life was being laid out as, in a way
0: that he was like, never a This seen is it. It. it, was like a this is your life, yeah. Oddly enough, yeah. And he was watching yeah, it, was, it on a bed, you made it sound like it was a bed that they would wheel in, yeah. like a craftmatic adjustable bed, <laughs> right. and you know, in a, in a very um bittersweet, almost pitiful way. Um, I'm thinking about El Zapotal, which was Battle's Estate in South Miami. You have an aerial shot in the book, and all you see are just groves and groves of mame trees, which is just this really popular elusive fruit in Havana. And maybe this was a capitulation, this and the casino. If I'm never going to build uh, uh, you know, the famous casino on the waterfront in Havana. If I'm not going to be restored to Havana, I can almost— there's an infantilization of kind of building my Epcot Center version of this in Miami here. I, I wonder if in his final years he realized this is pretty much as good as it's going to get.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, the mame trees grow uh, wild in Oriente, and that was a childhood memory for him, the smell of it, the the look of it. And that was a big part of his. You know, he went from living in Union City, which is a gritty little town. Um, not there's no beauty in Union City. You can say what you want about it, but it was really a gritty place. And I, I always wondered about Cubans being in that urban, that gritty urban environment of Union City. And sure enough, a lot of them dream one day of getting to South Florida, which which he did. And one of the first things he did when he found the ranch or little farm almost with lots of property as he planted these groves of of those trees, the mame trees, and turned it into a business. But the business really was just sort of a front f- for it. Really, it was an emotional thing of wanting – of reclaiming his youth or reclaiming a memory of the island and surrounding himself with it. Sort of um, really almost entering the womb of the mame tree and surrounding mm. himself with these trees – Very poignant, very poignant, trying to reclaim something that had been lost. Again, very much part of the psychology of his generation.
0: You know, and uh, you got your mitts on this uh, puff piece in the late defunct Miami News that they wrote up on this guy. I'm just an old retiree. You know, he's there with his pet monkey and his beer belly bulging out of his pajamas, (laughs) sitting by his pool in his estate, 1985, just looking like a teddy bear, like a kind of guy you can hug, not, you know, not a guy who was like, Putting hits on people and his ex-girlfriend and and bombing all these bolita holes up up in New York, um, but it was a real sad demise at the very end when the government caught up with him and he was really sick and and died in 2007. One his his. His relationship with his son, who had assumed much of the day-to-day of the business, was kind of non-existent. It was much like Michael Corleone was not supposed to be in this. They wanted him to go to law school and whatnot. But he, he fell back into the business, and his mentor became a, a witness with the government and then shot himself. Um, everything just fell apart uh, for this family, and the dream just ended up a nightmare when the government caught up to them and, and Battle Senior himself died.
1: Yeah, well, that's often how these stories end, some version of that. They don't end well. Um, you know, you can create this criminal empire, which is what he created, a, a, an incredible criminal empire. I, I think battle, you know, the the corporation, i say, was as powerful as any mafia family, Not not necessarily as the mafia itself, which had, you know, five family structure and mafia families in different cities around the U.S. The corporation didn't have that. But the corporation was was as strong and as big and as powerful as any mafia family, and they controlled the one racket in its entirety, which gave them a tremendous amount of sway within the criminal underworld, value and sway within the criminal underworld. Battle set that up and organized it, and he sustained it for close to half a century based on force of will and his reputation and... His, his leadership abilities, um, which were in some ways admirable, aside from the, the viciousness and the brutality, many people spoke highly of him as a person. Those who were loyal to him remained loyal to him. He was kind of a soft-hearted guy. He took in stray dogs. He was a sentimentalist. Um, but he had a, created an empire around a false value system— um, based on murder and revenge and all kinds of ugly things and was able to keep those things at bay for a longer period of time than most criminals are able to pull off. And maybe this created within him and his family uh, an air of of legitimacy that they sort of came to believe that This whole Bolita operation was semi-legitimate and it wasn't hurting anyone or something. I don't know how, however, they self-justified it over the years. But the mask is ultimately pulled off of that and it's exposed. And I do believe that that's why these prosecutors, cops and prosecutors who came into the orbit of this organization and read the stories of the killing of that four-year-old girl and the horrible murders during the arson wars, They felt that that it would be a grave injustice if the corporation was not fully prosecuted in court. And even though there were many, even within law enforcement, who argued, ah, let the guy die of old age, it's too late now, he's not hurting anybody, this organization's days are over— There were others who felt strongly that this needed to be prosecuted.
0: And ironically, you know, in closing, um, TJ, even though it wasn't to be, he could well have taken his last breath in Havana. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, that's so unusual story. He was very unhealthy, and even after he had been—he'd copped a plea. Midway through the trial, he realizes that he's in such bad health, he's probably not even going to make it to the end of the trial, and it was looking like likely conviction, and so— He and his his tremendous lawyer, Jack Blumenfeld, um, decide to just cop a plea and, and throw themselves on the mercy of the court. And he's given his sentence, and now he's on dialysis. He's in really bad shape, and he's, he's in prison facilities, but he needs special care. And there's very few places where this special care is provided. And if I remember correctly, they were trying to get him to— a country where he could be put into special care, and they were asking for sort of a special dispensation to do that. And they originally were okay to do that, and he, a battle would ha, for it to happen, battle would have to have been taken through Costa Rica. Costa Rica at first agreed, and then under pressure from the government, they said, no, we won't take him. They were having trouble finding a country that would accept this convicted felon because the US government was frowned upon it and made it clear that it would be a diplomatic faux pas for any country and to Cuba, take that Cuba in. was almost his last resort until So that, the that last resort was, was yeah. well yeah he was going to the ultimate destination was the Dominican Republic he would have to stop overnight and be held in Cuba and they first said to battle you know would you can you conceive of such a thing and he thought about it and he said yeah i guess so he said better Fidel Castro than George Bush. Mm -hmm. That was his statement. I remember asking the lawyer, what did he mean by that? And um, he said, by then, I guess, he was so angered at the Bush family, the Bush family had betrayed the exile generation, had used the exile generation. So now his... His anger and sense of vengeance was stronger against Bush than it was against Castro. It never happened, by the way. He was sent to a hospital in North Carolina, and that's that's where he died.
0: As the worm turns, TJ English best-selling, New York Times best-selling author of Havana Nocturne, is newest is the corporation, an epic story of the Cuban-American underworld. Read it, but also don't let my book fall off the charts. Please, please, please. Uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on my show. This is such a treat.
1: It was for me too. Thank you.
0: Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Special thanks to NPR New York. This show airs on 88.9 WCBE News and is always available at NPR.org and the NPR One app. Follow and subscribe on iTunes at fulldradio.com. I'll hook you up with a vig. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week.